All this stuff that we talk about on this show, there is life after death. That life is like this. Spiritual things work in this way. How do you know if any of it is true? I mean, if you read something online about coral reefs and the Red Sea, you don't just have to take their word for it. You can go there. You can dive in, see the fish, and feel the water. But with the spiritual world, you're relying on the testimony of one person, like a Swedenborg, with no way to verify it, right? Actually, no. While the travel path isn't as clear as booking a flight to Cairo, people do make a trip to the other world more often than you might think. How do they do it, and what's that trip like? Glad you asked. And we're going to take a look at it tonight. Stay tuned. everybody, welcome back to another episode of Swedenborg and Life. This is sort of an episode that's going to tie a lot of things together. We're looking at modern spiritual experiences today. Because this whole show is based on this idea that there was this long, extraordinary series of spiritual experiences that we're, we've cat- had cataloged and we're reading through and learning from. Is it still happening today? That's what we're going to look at. And is there similarities? Is Swedenborg part of a larger whole? Or is he this anomaly, this little subsection of human experience? My name's Curtis. I'm going to be the host tonight, as I am every night, and you guys can be part of the show, get your questions, comments, and that kind of stuff, we'll answer them at the end of the program. All right, so let's take a look, man. Yeah, if this if this is really the stuff we're talking about on this show, if it's actually the truth about life, like if the stuff Swedenborg is describe, are describing is the underpinning mechanism for everything, it should show up for more people than just him. You should have other people being able to access something of this, right? We're going to take a look at that, those other travels tonight, and sort of where they intersect, and what can we learn about it. The point of everything, of all this knowledge is, can we learn anything about life that's going to make life better for everybody, right? So let's see what we can do tonight. We're going to go through a bunch of acronyms, and we're going to start with STE. those three letters mean, I'll give you a hint that they are a category of spiritual experience. Now, of course, spiritual experiences don't have natural categorizations, but we people have put some terms on them to try to bring some organization and some structure to these reports that people have. So that's all I'm going to give you. Fortunately, someone else is going to tell you, and actually someone who's more qualified than me to talk about it. This is Dr. Erica Hyatt. She's been on the show before. She's involved with research into spiritual phenomena like this, and she's going to explain what we're dealing with here with the STE. So STE stands for Spiritually Transformative Experience, and that is exactly what you would imagine it to be. It is an experience that can happen to anyone at any time in their lives, at any age, at any time of day. It is something that happens to you that changes the way you think about yourself, the world, and people around you. And usually it involves feeling connected with something bigger than yourself. And that could be something specific, like an angel, like a departed loved one. Or that might mean something like feeling connected to what's called source, energy, or some might define source as God. So it happens to you and it is significantly transformative in that the way you see the world and 
really existence is changed really forever. It can be religious, it can be a secular experience. There's something called Kundalini awakening, where it's just the sensation of energy that is uncoiling in your body. And then it could be something like an out of body experience, where in order to feel connected, you actually have to shed your physical attachment to your own body. So spiritually transformative experience is the broadest category. It's the umbrella that we've stuck over everything, all these different accounts of all these different kinds of things that people go through, right? And we are actually going to do something here that's really risky, because a lot of people might get really mad if we're going to recycle a cliff. Uh, last week, we put this one up, and it just happens to fit exactly with this episode, too. This isn't. This is a recording of somebody's spiritually transformative experience. Well, their description of it. We got it. It was a person who contacted us via Facebook. Her name is Anya, and she had this experience, and it wasn't, uh, you know, prompted by her being in physical danger, as some uh, some of the things we're going to talk about in the next section are, but yet it had a lot of elements like that, and it transformed the way she looked at life. So those are the two elements I thought we'd play. It's just a quick clip. This is not her reading it, but it, she wrote it, and we had someone else read it. So this is an example of a spiritually transformative experience, and one that happened just a little while ago. So this is something that's that's happening to people today. So here's hers. It was 1987. I was 32 at the time, knitting a scarf on a beach in Italy, when suddenly I got a life review. It was an inner body experience, I think. I relived my whole life until then, and I really don't know how many seconds or minutes. However, in my case, I only saw the good I had experienced, and that had been given to me. I then realized how important a smile, a hand on a head, or a kind word is. It was made clear to me I shouldn't ask anything for myself anymore. Then I got all information there was to get. It seemed I knew everything there was to know, even to the extent of why at some point so many millions have to die at times. And finally, a voice in my head spoke three times, every time increasing in loudness, Service to humanity. Never in my life have I felt so at peace with myself, with life, and with everybody on earth. And never before or afterwards have I experienced such feelings of happiness and gratefulness. It sounds pretty cool, right? Never before or since experienced the feelings we all want, happiness, gratitude. So that was... That was in the the late 80s, or early, I forget what you said, in the 80s, and that is actually when people stopped having spiritual experiences. That's the last recorded one. I'm just kidding. They're happening all the time, all over, but that was a cool modern example. And this is just just one person's. These are are a lot more common than most people realize. And to prove it, we've got another person who's dealing with spiritual experiences. This is actually an author. His name is Graham Nichols, and he has written a couple books about spiritual or out-of-body experiences, and he's had a number of those experiences himself. And this is a recording of him. I got to interview him, and he's talking about a spiritually transformative experience that he had when he was young. So here he is explaining what happened to him. Well, I guess the the first one was was the one as a as a very small child. Um, I woke up in the middle of the night, uh, walked out of my bedroom into the the hallway of the apartment I grew up in, and there was a, a very tall figure um, standing in the doorway uh, that led out out of the apartment, um, and I remember being 
being quite scared, but not because anything particularly frightening happened, but just because it was quite, you know, beyond anything that had happened to me before. And I think even as a small child, five or six years old, you still already have a some kind of a framework of what's possible and what's what's real, etc. And um, it was obviously not my family. My whole family are quite. Um, short <laughs> so it was definitely not someone uh, from the family or anything like that so uh, I just remember kind of going down onto sort of ground level I think to get some kind of sense of solidity because you know I was frightened by what I was seeing and then I remember turning towards my parents bedroom to try and call out to them but um, I couldn't really uh, muster any any sound because I was uh, too too emotionally uh, engaged in what was happening and then I, I turned back and the figure was still there it didn't really do anything it just sort of looked at me and there was this sense that beyond the doorway there was a kind of um, it seemed like it was leading somewhere so it seemed like it was on a threshold uh, between uh, this level and another level or something like that I mean obviously it's a very long time ago and my memory is quite um, faded of, of all the details but it was uh, very powerful in terms of what it actually led to because I think after that I just had this openness to the possibility of other levels and different kinds of experiences and uh, things like that so um, when, when at my school people talked about spirituality and um, growing up in London London's very multicultural and we had lots of different beliefs and religions and ideas uh, going around and my school would often you know we would cel celebrate Diwali the Hindu festival of light and we would also uh, celebrate Christian festivals and also you know Muslim festivals there was a whole range of different things that we would we would mark so um, I think it it just sort of opened me up to maybe knowing to some degree what these different cultures were talking about and maybe the the underlying principles behind a lot of these religious ideas that obviously over time become a lot more about what was great about Swedenborg in many ways because he, he reconnected um, with the direct experience of these things. In, in many religions that's that's been lost unfortunately and I think uh, Swedenborg was very conscious of, of bringing that, that back in and trying to work on those kinds of principles so pretty remarkable that it happened when he was a young child you must think like whoever's you know distributing spiritual experiences oh no you not not until they're a certain age but i wanted to play that clip because it was not only the experience but he talked about the impact it had on his life specifically how it changed his life and sort of opening him up to these kinds of possibilities and so that is the nature of the spiritually transformative experience so for you guys uh, you're walking around meeting people. You probably met a number of people who have had their lives transformed by these experiences. If you haven't had it, this is this is like this could be a part of why the world is like it is, right? Hopefully, probably not as big a part as it would be nice to have it, since it seems like the experiences generally always have a good impact. I don't know if I've heard of a negative, spiritually transformative experience that, that had a negative experience on, or a negative impact overall. Some have frightening elements, but it seems like it always leads to something good. Uh, so it seems like 
you want, you'll be glad if your next door neighbor who just is moving in had one of these because it seems like it makes you cooler and nicer. So not only are people these days having them, this has happened all throughout history. I mean, from accounts we've had, including with none other than Emanuel Swedenborg. And we're going to get into one of his spiritual transformative experiences. Oh, but before, I want to say, if you want to hear more from Graham, uh, check out this link. Uh, of course, you don't want to type that in, but you can click it if it's there, or just open the description up that we did a text interview with him, and he describes actually two other spiritually transformative experiences that he had. Uh, that was just the first one. So there were sort of three major points for him and, and other experiences. So ch- it's definitely worth looking at. There's more in there about what his experiences are like, how he, how he goes about them, that kind of thing. So with Swedenborg, he, you talk about someone who's having a lot of experiences, Swedenborg got to the point where he was having them so often that he could write enough that you could make an entire web show where you talked for an hour every week about them. That's what we did. And yet, he had to have something that kicked it off, right? What we're going to listen to here is a reading of Sweden, what could be called Swedenborg's spiritually transformative experience. So this happened in a period where he had been doing a lot of work, putting in a lot of spiritual work, meaning that he was pursuing what you would call spiritual growth, or we could call it personal growth. It's not necessarily that mystical. It's trying to be a better person, uh, push back the negative human tendencies, follow your religious devotion. He was trying to really make this connection with God and, and see something greater. And he was journaling. He had a, that's now published as Journal of Dreams. And this was an experience he had where it really things switched into a new gear here. So this is Swedenborg's notes. Uh, this is not something he published that was found afterwards, so it's pretty raw, which is nice. This is, this is what he went through, uh, a very special experience that he had. At 10 o'clock I went to bed and felt a little better. After half an hour I heard some racket under my head, but then I thought that the tempter left me. Immediately a shiver came over me, starting from my head and spreading throughout my body. And I also heard some rumbling coming in waves, and I realized that something holy had come over me. I actually fell asleep, and about 12 o'clock at night, or maybe it was 1 or 2 in the morning, such a strong shivering seized me from head to toe, like thunder produced by several frontal systems colliding shook me beyond description and threw me down on my face. And when I was prostrated in this way, I was clearly awake and I saw that I'd been thrown down. I was wondering what this was supposed to mean and I spoke as if I was awake, but I found that the words were actually put into my mouth. And I said, you almighty Jesus Christ, who of your great mercy has seen fit to come to so great a sinner, make me worthy of this grace and I clasped my hands together, and I prayed. And then a hand came forth between my hands, and it pressed my hands firmly. In a little while, I continued my prayer, and I said, You have promised to give grace to all sinners. You cannot do otherwise than keep your word. In that same moment, I found myself sitting in his lap, and I looked at him face to face, There he was, a countenance of this holy appearance. All was of a manner that I cannot even describe. He was smiling at me, and I was convinced that that's what he looked like when he was alive. He spoke to me and asked if I have a health certificate. 
And to this I replied, Lord, you know better than I do. And he said, well then, do it. And that is, as I inwardly grasped it, do love me or do what you have promised. God, give me grace to do it. I found it at that moment beyond my power and I woke up shuddering. We just dropped there in the middle of an entry, actually. So if you want to read more of that story, there's the before and after. Look up Swedenborg's Journal of Dreams. You can get it at Swedenborg.com. Now, you may or may not have noticed near the end that Swedenborg is saying that he's face-to-face with God. And God says to him, do you have a health certificate? And I'm going to tell you in brief this story. Why did God say that to him? This goes back to... Swedenborg, when he was younger, before he had had any spiritual experiences, he's just a scientist and, and, you know, guy trying to get his education, doing all this stuff, right? He was on a boat going from one part of Europe to another. And when the boat got into the harbor, they all had to stay on. There was a quarantine because there was disease. I think it was the plague was going on. And so they had to make sure that nobody in on the ship had the disease before they let him out. Swedenborg, you, you noticed in there that he was like, oh, I'm such a sinner. He had some, he was a bit of a hothead. He, when he was younger, I mean, he thought he was really cool because he was so smart. And he thought, like, I don't need to put up with this. So he actually jumped ship, as it was called. Like, he snuck out of the ship into the town, and he got caught. And they knew, hey, you you snuck out before the quarantine was over. You could have gotten us all sick. So he actually, they actually put him on jail, and I think he was facing death there. Uh, but he ha- had some connections, so he called people. They pulled a few strings, and they got him out, right? Uh, the point is, when God shows up, God says to him, do you have a clean bill of health? He's referencing that episode in his life, which I think is fascinating, okay? Needless to say, an experience like that was not like it redirected Swedenborg. He had already, by that point in his life, was on this path of trying to, you know, do what was right and, and, and seek what was higher. But that was a big, that was sort of one of the major opening points, or, you know, like this is when the gates started to really open. He started to go into his his fully spiritual phase that we pull these quotes from when we read them here. So thought you might think that was interesting. If you didn't, well, you're going to think this next in- section is interesting because it's so Great. Let's check it out now. Our next acronym, N-D-E. So this is one that you're probably all familiar with. Actually, I shouldn't say that. If you're not familiar with it, that's totally fine. Uh, this this one is more well-known than the first one, though. I'm not going to explain it legally by my contract. I cannot explain acronyms with three letters. I'm going to leave that again to Erica. So the near-death experience, or NDE, is something that really came about with uh, the publication of Raymond Moody's Life After Life. And he found interviewing people that had returned from major episodes close to death. So we're talking about things where their hearts had stopped or they had uh, stopped breathing. So example, drownings or cardiac arrest. In incidents where these people were close to death or actually had died, they were experiencing ineffable, so beyond words, experiences that challenged how they thought about their lives. And often the characteristics of this would include being 
sent down a tunnel of light where they were visited by deceased loved ones or guides. And those guides could even take in later research. We saw things like forms of animals for people who didn't have religious associations or affiliations. Small children, for example, might see bumblebees as their guides or familiar objects. So you're going down a tunnel of light to a place of familiarity met by someone that feels safe and trusting. And they're telling you that you've actually crossed over. And that's where the term kind of crossing over that's been frequently used comes from. You've crossed over from life to death. And you would actually reach a point of transition that was signified by a bridge or a river, somewhere you had to cross where you were told or you instinctively knew that you could not come back to life after you've gotten to that point. So the the near-death experience, this is probably the most famous term for spiritual experiences. As she said, Raymond Moody made it up. He was a doctor, released this book, Life After Life. This is really when you first started to have categories for spiritual experiences rather than just saying, oh, you were messed up from medication, or oh, that's weird that you say that. This is when it started to be like, oh, you had a the near-death experience. And these are generally, uh, you know, yeah, spiritually transformative experiences that are triggered by your life being in danger, by, by intense physical stress. Uh, and so in the book where he introduced this, this um, naming of the phenomenon, life after life, he has a whole section we're looking at here on Swedenborg. You see these two different sets of paragraph. One is something that Swedenborg, uh, a common ex- element in near-death experiences, then where Swedenborg says the same thing. So when he first wrote the book, you know, and there wasn't Swedenborg Foundation telling him, you better do this. He just found Swedenborg and thought, there's a lot of similarities here. He included this whole segment on the similarities between Swedenborg and the modern near-death, what these people now, hundreds of years later, are reporting in hospitals, you know, at, at the scenes of accidents when they have these sorts of experiences. So on, I want to highlight one more connection between Swedenborg in the modern NDE, and that comes from professor and psychiatrist Bruce Grayson, and he was a guy who made up this thing was called the Grayson Scale. When he was doing research, this is from the IANS website, International Association for Near-Death Studies. You can look it up there. He, in, a, in an attempt to sort of uh, research this stuff or, or write these things down in an ordered, st- structured way, he made up this questionnaire, and you could see it at the top there. There's 16 questions. Did you have this element? Did, you know, did you see a bright light? There's like a, a thing worth zero, which says, no, I didn't. One is, yes, I did. Two is, I saw it and it overwhelmed me. So through this, you would kind of get a categorizing system for these. So I thought that it would be fun to take some of Swedenborg's experiences and put them through the Grayson scale. So do you want to do it? No, we're going to do it anyway. All right, so here is an experience that Swedenborg had. He says, One time, just after, this is an experience in his book, True Christianity. You can download this and all the books for free. Just click on them or look in the description. Go to Swedenborg.com, free ebooks, free PDFs. Anyway, he says, One time, just after I woke up from sleeping, I fell into a deep meditation on God. Looking up, I saw above me in heaven an oval of intensely shining light. As I fixed my gaze on it, it gradually receded toward the sides and merged into the periphery of my vision. Then behold... Heaven opened up to me. I saw magnificent things and angels standing in a circle on the south side of the opening, talking to each other. Because a burning desire came over me to hear what they were saying, I was allowed to hear it. First the sound of it, 
which was full of heavenly love, and then the conversation itself, which was full of the wisdom that goes with that love. They were having a conversation about the only God, and being in partnership with God, and about the salvation that results. What they were saying was ineffable. Most of it could not be expressed in the words of any earthly language. Several times before, however, I had been in gatherings of angels in heaven itself and had been able to join in their conversation because I was then in a state similar to theirs. This enabled me to understand them now and to select from their discussion a few points that could be expressed in a rational way using the words of earthly language. So we could only take a little bit back. I was thinking, if you're watching this on your phone, we really nailed you with the size of that text. Uh, So that's his experience. And if we look at the Grayson scale, there's a number, there's 16 questions on it. There's five of them that he checks the boxes for. Of course, we can't ask him about all these, but just in this description, did you see, feel, or surrounded by a brilliant light? Check. Did you feel separated from your body? Check. Did you seem to enter some other unearthly world? Check. Did you seem to encounter a mystical being or presence or hear an unidentifiable voice? Check. Did you see diseased or religious spirit? So, that would have ranked pretty high on the scale, especially if we could ask him a few other questions that are on it. Let's take a look at another experience that he has. Once when I was meditating about the Lord's second coming, there suddenly appeared a flash of light which forcibly struck my eyes, and I therefore looked up, and lo, the whole heaven above me appeared luminous, and there from the east to the west in a continuous strain a glorification was heard, and an angel stood near. After this I heard the sound of singing, and more deeply in the east I saw a flashing of light more brilliant than the former, and I asked the angel what the glorification there was. I looked again into the eastern heaven, and it was lighted up from the right side. The illumination extended to the southern expanse. I heard a sweet sound and asked the angel what it, what it was pertaining to the Lord that they were glorifying there. Hearing and understanding these things, my heart... So we cut out a little part to make it not too long, but he, he got the gist of it. Hearing and understanding these things, my heart greatly rejoiced, and I went home joyfully. And here I returned from the spiritual to the bodily state in which I wrote out that all this I had seen. And heard. That's true Christianity 625. And that checks a lot of the boxes we saw before, but in addition, there's this one, a feeling of joy. And here he describes, and he just writes, I had a feeling of joy, but what he must have actually been feeling was probably really, really mind-blowing stuff, right? So that just adds that new wrinkle. And this third one is another, uh, speaks directly to another question or another checkbox on the grace and scale. This can be understood from what was said earlier. And so we're, oops, we, we uh, lost our text, so we're going to get back in a second. What I want to say is uh, we're jumping right in to um, his, his spiritual experiences. Uh, so it's going to be right in the middle of something and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff we just do. So we're going to jump back in. One, two, three. Ah, this can be understood. Sometimes you just got to reboot, man. That's the only way with computer stuff. This can be... So so that that all that ramble I did in there was to say, that's why it's saying this can be understood. We don't know what he's talking about, but it's you can go look it up. This can be understood from what was said earlier about the closed door between the heavenly paradise and the earthly one, and from very many other circumstances. Okay, Throw that part out, even though it's cool. I can also testify that a veil being drawn away was displayed before me, and then I saw truth clearly in light. In fact, even my ocular vision became sharper, which amazed me. So he's talking about even his physical vision. Uh, So that would check this final box here, where your senses more vivid 
than usual. So I just find it interesting that this guy and looking at near-death experiences came up with this scale to catalog these things modern people are telling when, when they get sick or when they get hurt. And the Swedenborg is describing these same elements back in different circumstances in a different time period, a uh, different format. But so, so there may be some kind of convergence there too. Also, see this picture here, man? There's light in that picture. And all across, all kinds of STEs, NDEs, there's light. And uh, Graham Nichols was talking to me a little bit about light that he sees during his experiences. So I wanted to get a little on that uh, from him. So here it is. Well, the, the crystalline light is one that's uh, fairly common in my experiences and one that um, I guess is the most the most related in a, in a sense to spiritual levels and spiritual experiences. and. I will um, experience this uh, crystalline light both in, in the physical environment, the physical world, and also in those more spiritual levels, the summer land levels, those kinds of um, areas. And the, the best way I can describe it is that it's like experiencing all of the colors of the rainbow like you're seeing through a prism, but at the same time um, it's a pure white or, or pure golden crystalline light um, so it's it's interesting because it's kind of multiple qualities all at once it's like you're experiencing the light but then the light has some essential quality or meaning or um, almost like a consciousness to it almost like an awareness to it so it's like that light represents something far deeper than than just the the quality of illuminating the scene for example light that represents something far deeper this is this is a foundation this is a load-bearing beam in swedenborg's accounts of the the structure of of the spiritual reality uh secrets of heaven four five thirty and also i like that graham said that it's like a consciousness because swedenborg has some interesting things to say about that since understanding and wisdom from the lord is what appears as light to the eyes of angels and spirits, and since it also illuminates their intellect from within, the colors are essentially changes in or modifications of understanding and wisdom. So that it's an excerpt from something talking about the origin of colors, but you see his definition of spiritual light is wisdom. You know, that that's what you actually, does the same thing as physical light here. And then further, Secrets of Heaven, the glow of this light, this this spiritual light, does does look like the light of the world, but it is not like it because it is not earthly but spiritual. It contains wisdom, so that what streams down before the eyes of the inhabitants this way is pure wisdom. So the wiser the angels are, the more brilliant the light they enjoy. So those, I, I don't know, but to me it seems like you saw Graham and Swedenborg, these are two different people describing the same thing in different ways, in my humble opinion. All right, are you hungry for letters? Let's get three more in there. It's time for OBE. So you know the drill by this point, all right? Erica Hyatt, take it away. An out-of-body experience is uh, a kind of experience where you actually physically, it's hard to say physically, but there's a sense of physical detachment from your body. So most commonly this happens in times of sleep, but it can also happen when an individual is going through trauma, a very frightening experience, something bad is happening to them. 
something highly pleasurable is happening to them, or sometimes it takes people totally by surprise. But the main component of the OBE is that you have the sensation of being out of your body. For some people, they might just hover above their bodies. They might have the sensation of looking at their bodies below them as they're in rest or repose. And some might actually take off and travel. They might go down the street. They might be able to travel across the country. Anita Morjani, when she was having her near death experience, this is the author of Dying to Be Me. She was able to leave her body and actually have a sense of all things happening at the same time and to be everywhere at the same time. So she was able to see her brother on the airplane as he was rushing to her side as she died. And she was also able to see from a different perspective her husband at the bedside. So an OBE can encompass all of those experiences. You get out of this duality of mind-brain that I have to be in my body in order to actually experience life. And you're able to see from multiple perspectives. Some people even go to higher realms. They'll have accounts of going to hell or going to heaven or going to other planets. But they are detached from their bodies. Eventually, they come back in and they settle back in. And actually, that can be pretty jarring for them as they attempt to reintegrate into a body that now feels awfully restrictive once they've escaped and had a chance to travel around as almost a disembodied spirit. So, as you can tell, as she's saying, the categories are a bit fluid. The out-of-body experience is essentially, yeah, you're traveling up out of your body, doesn't need to be a near-death experience. But sometimes people like Anita Morjani are having near-death experiences and they have out-of-body experiences. But there, there are some distinctions there, and that's why we wanted to look at this one separately as it is. So essentially, out-of-body experiences is exactly what it sounds like. True Christianity 76 uh, this is Swedenborg describing an out-of-body experience uh, that is triggered by what he's thinking about. One day I was in a meditation on the creation of the universe. Angels who were above me to the right noticed my meditation. I was looking down like, oh, look at what, look what Swedenborg's meditating about. The region had had a number of meditations and debates on that same subject. Therefore, one of them came down and invited me to join them. I came into my spirit and accompanied the angel. One uh, something that, that I find interesting about that is it's sort of because he was thinking about this thing, uh, it sort of put a beacon on him that, that angels, which are you know these people who have been thinking about the same kind of thing or were involved in that, knew he's there. Oh, do you, it's I feel like it's sort of like on the web what you're searching for, what you type into the bar. People, oh, this person's interested in this, so they get connected to a body of knowledge. You know what I mean? That they're somehow when you're thinking about something, you attract that kind of spiritual. Uh, company to you, right? So, so he was focusing on something, and that led him to uh, to a particular out of body experience. And here's a story that the Graham Nichols told, where he was had a similar sort of thing. He was thinking about a particular location, and that affected his his out of body experience. Well, I think one of the uh, consistencies across descriptions of out of body experiences in pretty much every culture and every writer that I've come across is this idea that where you put your attention is essentially where you go. It's like your your awareness, your consciousness, um, where it's focused will, will actually materialize to some degree. You'll actually find yourself drawn to that particular uh, location. And that, that happens in many, many of my experiences. Um, 
a recent example it uh, was where I was feeling a bit homesick for for London because um, I now live in Tallinn in Estonia and I was thinking about London I started to go into the out-of-body experience and I found myself um, around 10 meters above the, the top of the Shard uh, building in London which is a I think it's now the tallest building in Europe or um, near the tallest buildings in Europe. Um, I didn't know anything about this building at the time so initially I was confused and didn't know where I was and thought uh, I don't even know if this is London for example but then other landmarks and other things around um, proved to me that it was London but I, I didn't recognize this building at all. So then after the our body experience was over, it was interesting because then I could look it up and I found I found that it had it had just been opened uh, to the public when this experience happened. So that was uh, kind of a verification again, a small verification that there was something objective to it. I can't be sure that um, I didn't hear about the shard or see the shard at some point unconsciously, but as far as I know, I had no awareness of that building. So. That's an example of how your awareness can be drawn there. But I think in in this whole area, I think people, for example, especially um, when there's a strong emotional bond or a love between individuals, um, that's often when people will be drawn to each other in the out-body experience. So that's, that's very common as well. Uh, you might uh, go to a loved one. Um, this is often reported in um, near-death experiences and also when people actually die they'll they'll maybe the living person the living relative will see an apparition of the person who's just died and things like that it seems to be that as we're human beings and we're most uh, drawn to other people and um, you know relationships it's most likely and uh, most common in a way that we're drawn to other other people but it can but it, I think whenever there's an emotional factor involved that's when it's uh, when it's most likely because um, if you're if you love a particular place and you're you know or you've got a history there or you've got some background there then it's it's far more likely that you'll you'll be drawn there in in the out-of-body experience as well so yeah it seems to be linked to consciousness and emotion so he's saying that across a lot of experiences, this idea that love attracts you to think, like, you know, if you have an affinity for something, someone, someplace, you get drawn there when you're in spirit mode. And this is also uh, one of the basic principles of spiritual physics, as Swedenborg describes it. That's how that word world works. You don't believe me? Divine Providence, 29. <laughs> Got ya. In the spiritual world, all union takes place by means of attentiveness. When anyone is there is thinking about someone else because of a desire to talk with her or him, that other person is immediately present. They see each other face to face. The same thing happens when someone is thinking about someone else because of a loving affection. But in this case, the result is a union, while in the former case, it's only a presence. So, love brings you closer. Thinking about people gets you together, but love is what creates uh, unions. So, well, we're on the subject of Swedenborg. Uh, why don't we look a little farther? Because he was Swedenborg was having out-of-body experiences, but he actually was going far enough that he was having what I would call in-body experiences. And I'll explain what the heck that is through this quote, True Christianity 157. 
Since our spirit means our mind, and that's a distinction Swedenborg makes, the conscious part of you is the spirit. Therefore, being in spirit, as the word sometimes says, he's talking about the Bible, refers to the state of our mind when it is separated from our body. In this state, the prophets saw the sort of things that exist in the spiritual world. Therefore, this state is called a vision of God. At those times, the prophet's state was like the state of spirits and angels in the spiritual world. In this state, our spirit can move from place to place while our body stays where it is, as, it, as is also true of our mind's eye. This is the state I myself have been in now for 26 years, with the difference that I am in my spirit and my body at the same time, and only sometimes out of my body. So Swedenborg had a wide range of different kinds of experiences and continual experiences every day. Sometimes he would just, you know, pop out of the body, zoom around, but other times he was in the body, still in his body, and able to look around and see the spiritual world. And here he explains that a little bit more here uh, in Heaven and Hell 441. While I was walking through city streets and through the countryside, absorbed in conversation with spirits, it seemed exactly as though I were just as awake and observant as ever, walking without straying, through all, though all the while I was in visions. I was seeing groves, rivers, mansions, houses, people, and more. After I had been walking for some hours, though, I suddenly found myself back in consciousness of my physical sight and realized that I was somewhere else. I was utterly stunned by this and realized that I had been in the state of people described as being led by the Spirit into another place. For as long as it lasted, I was not thinking about my route, even though it might have been many miles or about the time, though it might have been many hours or even days. I was not conscious of any fatigue either. This is how we can be led by ways we know nothing of all the way to some predetermined place without straying. Okay, so it probably made it seem like so that's an extreme thing where he, he could be moving through the world, like walking, basically sleepwalking through the world, but competently while he's off in the spiritual world. That wasn't his, the, the experience he was normally having. His normally was this out-of-body, in-body experience. Like he could be, if he was sitting at this table, he could be talking to me, hey, but he could also be talking to angels that were over here. You know, he could do it sort of at the same time. But he sometimes went as far as to have that. So there's a lot of different kinds of spiritual experiences you can have. If you didn't, if if that was the point of the show, to say that, we said it. There's a lot of different kinds. So I heard that in the, the chat room that's going on while we're taping this live, people are hungry for more letters. That's what they said. This is going to fill you up good. Here comes part four. Okay, so maybe you knew the other ones, but maybe this one's stumping you a little bit. What could that one be? SWA, what could it be? Well, I'll let Erica take it away. What's that? We don't have Erica? Oh, that's because <laughs> we made that one up. SWA is spiritual world awareness. It's not an actual category. Uh, it just, um, we, we wanted all these things to look good together, right? These little things. So spiritual world awareness is this section where we're going to talk about how close it is and different ways that we can kind of tap into it. So let's start in Divine Providence 317 where we get at why. As far as our spirits are concerned, and it is our spirit that thinks, we are in the spiritual world. You're, we're in it. We're in it. That you, you're conscious. The conscious part of you is obviously 
hugely impacted by the physical world, but we're also impacted by the spiritual world in our thoughts and feelings. The the ways we think about things, the way we feel about things is affected by both worlds. So we're already there, right? That's why it's useful to have some awareness of how that world works. You can understand your own psyche a little better. Secrets of Heaven 6408 and also Spiritual Experiences 304 is talking about why we could be in a world like that but not really know it. While we are living in our body, we have a distinct sensation of what goes on in our body, but a very dim sensation of what goes on in our spirit. Worldly cares stand in the way as long as we are in our body. When the human mind is absorbed in worldly concerns, it is as though it is let down and falls from heavens, falls, falls from the heavens. I have also learned through experience when I was being led around in the heavens here and there, which took place during a time of wakefulness, that when I lapsed into thoughts about worldly matters, then what I had seen in the heavenly habitations at once disappeared. So those who let their thoughts drop into the world fall from the heavens. So let's talk for a second about what worldly concerns are. So in those two, there's this thing that's translated there as worldly concerns. It seems to me it drops you out of the spiritual, uh, the spiritual scene. You know, so what is that? It's not necessarily things like worrying about, I mean, like thinking, well, it's trash night tonight. I should take the trash can out. That's not going to kill your spiritual uh, connection. You know, it worldly concerns are more like ego concerns, like worry about reputation. Also, getting excessively worried about material sort of things uh, can be another one. But but in general, it's more negative sort of ego stuff that shuts you off. Because as Swedenborg said, we're supposed to be immersed in this physical world. That you're, The way to be spiritual is to participate in this life and do it honestly and faithfully. You're not supposed to uh, retreat from it. Some people can get good things out of that, but it's not like being in this world and figuring out how to provide for people who are dependent on you is is somehow an impediment to the spirit. That's actually an avenue to the spirit. So that's a little bit on worldly concerns. But yet, even even with that, even with us living in the world, people do have these experiences, as we've been seeing. And it's, I wanted wanted to learn a little bit more about where, how do people achieve these experiences? They're happening all over. Um, and how do people in different cultures get at these experiences? And, and do they come with intent or, or not with intent? So I sat down with author Richard Smoley, who's been on our show before, and he talked a little bit about how these experiences show up sort of around the world and and what people do to get there? Well, there are basically two kinds of spiritual experience. One is solicited and one is unsolicited. I mean, there are a lot of spiritual experiences that just happen to people. Sometimes people are just walking down the street and then some you know, light goes on in their eyes or they suddenly see the whole cosmos and all its glory. Uh, and no one really knows how that works. Now, then there are the other kinds, which you could call the solicited kinds. Uh, which uh, I think of what you've been talking about. They are uh, things, experiences that people try to have. Um, and there's one uh, approach, which is uh, some type of meditative experience. Now, uh, meditative experience can be quite a bit of different things, but it usually involves some kind of concentration that allows the mind to still itself and open up to deeper dimensions. Uh, there are a lot of ways that this can be uh, approached. Uh, breathing practices, regulating one's breathing, is a very time-honored way. And you'll remember that um, Swedenborg, uh, in his youth, seems to have discovered something like this uh, 
uh, almost on his own, and to what extent that had anything to do uh, with his later uh, spiritual experiences and visions, uh, I don't really know. But it is very intriguing that it does seem to resemble, you know, certain breathing practices, pranayama, as the uh, Hindus call it, um, that um, are practiced today. Uh, you can go to any yoga class and, you know, practice them at least in kind of a light form. Uh, so there are breathing practices, meditative practices. The other, uh, another important way uh, which people have um, spiritual experience is by some extreme circumstance. That is to say, uh, some kind of long fast isolation, anything that kind of breaks your connection with the day-to-day and breaks your connection with the, um, you know, shall we say with your physical embodiment, or at least loosens it, opens you up to this kind of experience. Uh, the American Indians would have the vision quest in which, you know, a young man usually would go out for uh, several days uh, completely alone without any food. And he would just sit there and, um, you know, through this fasting and through prayers and through being in the complete solitude in nature, he was often granted a vision. Uh, that was one way of doing it. Um, there's the shamanistic way, and shamans seem to have used two different approaches. One uh, is some kind of psychotropic drug. Um, now, the psychotropic drugs, that, the psychedelic drugs that we're uh, most familiar with are like LSD and ecstasy, um, which are synthesized, right? They're artificial. The shamans, of course, didn't have that, but they would use certain plants, uh, uh, particularly mushrooms. Uh, there's a South American psychedelic drink called ayahuasca. That's actually gotten kind of trendy uh, even in the United States. And these often, again, combined with isolation, fasting, you know, some sense of religious uh, preparation or devotion, uh, you know, can induce these experiences. Um, you know, if you're doing this, uh, you're trying to induce an experience like this, uh, you know, your, mind, your mindset and your attitude are the most important things. You are essentially closing yourself off to the rest of the world for a certain amount of time, and you're opening yourself to an experience of the sacred. So that's how, that's how people go about it. And how, how did Swedenborg get to where he was? There's not a ton on it, but there's a couple of things that you can pick out. As Richard mentioned, breathing. Breathing was a big part of it for him. And he talks a lot about the way that the lungs and the spirit are connected. Here's a, a little basic quote he gave about it, Heaven and Hell 446. The deepest communication of our spirit is with our breathing and our heartbeat. Thought connects with our breathing and affection and attribute of love with our heart. And we had a, like a bunch of quotes about this breathing spirit connection. And so I took that one, which was the most simple and straightforward. And I took this next one, which was just off the deep end, like the most bizarre sort of one, unless you're used to this kind of stuff. And this is a quote uh, about a time when he was just fully immersed in this spiritual experience and, and had this connection with breathing. So let's read it, man. Spiritual experience is 494 to 495. Later, I learned to what provinces those singing angels belonged, namely the purer ones who are angelic, belong to the pulmonary functions, something I was allowed to experience, that is, that they controlled my lungs for a while which was done so gently and pleasantly and indeed internally that I scarcely felt any breathing of air, 
I felt it from the center to the outside, for the lungs act into all parts of the body, the inner and the outer. Besides these, there were some who controlled my outer breathing, which I could feel very well, and they are spiritual and therefore more noticeable. Moreover, those choirs devoted to the involuntary action of breathing are distinct from those devoted to the voluntary action of breathing. Those devoted to the spontaneous action are governed by feelings alone, while the ones devoted to the voluntary action are governed at the same time by understanding and reason, being those who are in charge of speech and who do speak. I love his journal of spiritual experiences. It's so much intense data. And that, that touches on his idea of the, the grand human or that all, all people who've made it into heaven connect with a certain part of the body and that he is actually getting his lungs controlled by angels in heaven and all that stuff. So if it's your first time tuning into the show, welcome. That's, that's what you're in for. Uh, but there you see this intense connection between uh, spirit and and breathing into even to the point that the spiritual world could influence his breathing, have communication with his um, involuntary breathing, all that kind of stuff. All right, so that's one. Uh, the other one that he talked about tangibly was thought focus, or he what he was doing with his thoughts would affect spiritual experiences and could induce them. And we heard one earlier when he, you know, earlier in the show he was concentrating on something and that happened. Here's another account of that from True Christianity 112. Once I woke up just after first light, I went out into the garden in front of my house and watched the sun rising in its splendor. There was a halo around it, at first very subtle, but later on more definite, shining as though it was made of gold. Beneath the sun's rim I saw a cloud rising up. Mirroring the flame of the sun, it gleamed like a ruby. At that point I fell into a meditation based on the myths of the most ancients, reflecting on how they pictured Aurora, the dawn, as having silver wings and carrying gold in her mouth. Mentally taking great pleasure in these sights, I came into my spirit. So what he was thinking about induced this because he was out oh the sun's rising i'm gonna check it out oh you know how there's those myths about aurora and how that bam he's in the other world so and there's a lot more in swedenborg about how he manages thoughts to to kind of get there however you have to really comb through swedenborg to get that you know he wrote uh, 30 volumes you know depending on how it's translated tons of material and he just very rarely talks about how to do this stuff and i think that the main reason for that is that to him, after learning as much as he did, he realized the most important thing we can do is personal growth. I mean, this is trying to become a nicer, better, wiser person. And learning about this stuff is important, but really, some people are going to pierce the veil, you know, some people maybe aren't going to be able to do that in this life, uh, but we can still gain movement. Uh, In Divine Providence 296, he says, we need to realize that all of us in spirit are in some community in the spiritual world, in a hellish one if we're evil, and a heavenly one if we're good. And he says elsewhere that we move around in life depending on, you know, what we're up to. Sometimes we are even visible there when we are deep in meditation, Further, just as sound and speech spread through the air in the physical world, desire and thought spread out in the communities in the spiritual world. There is a correspondential relationship here because desire answers to sound and thought to speech. So the takeaway there is that, you know, there's a lot of takeaways you could potentially, but for this show, the idea is that we're in communities and we can move, you know, based on what we're doing. So even 
your spirit is moving even if you're not seeing the spiritual world. It's based on what you love and if you're, what kind of person you are. So the nicer you are, the further your spirit can move into heaven while you're here. So that can be done by anybody. Uh, doesn't matter if you can can see amazing things and float out of your body or that kind of stuff. You know, love moves us up, and we're all going to get our chance one day to see it anyway, right? I mean, everyone's going to go there and get more of it than you could ever dream of, of seeing this other world. So I'm just trying to say we're talking all about these spiritual experiences. If you haven't had any, that's all right. You're still cool. <laughs> I haven't had one. Uh, nothing that overt like that. Like these people are describing. I've had some stuff that seems a little on the edge, but but not, you know, we're still cool. We're cool. All right. We're still participating in life. All right. So that said, we do want to learn as much as we can from people who are having these experiences, right? So let's take a look now at how are people doing this uh, in, in science? How are we researching this stuff? Let's take a look at part five. Yeah, so we, we dropped the acronym thing. That's all right, man. It's okay to do that. It's okay to just be you. All right, so this this is this is one of the things I really wanted to get at with this show. If this stuff is happening so much, can we learn more about it? Are people cataloging this? Are people investigating into this? So I'm gonna, we're going to hear from each of our three guests uh, about this. First of all, Erica Hyatt talking a little bit about some research that's going on. Take, for example, Sam Parnia's AWARE study. This is out of New York. He's actually measuring, trying to measure what happens when people come into the emergency room when they have uh, no heartbeat and when their brains supposedly have shut down. He's actually trying to see what happens in those moments when people are clinically dead, if they're able to experience consciousness. And how Sam Parnia has done it is by hanging pictures that can only be viewed from the ceiling, looking down. So if you were out of your body at a time where all the medical indicators suggest that you are dead, would you be able to, when you come back, if you come back, would you be able to tell us what you saw from the ceiling? And would that be a way of scientifically proving that when you were near death or at death, that something else was happening beyond your body? And if you guys have been watching the show for any serious length of time, you'll know that Dr. Hyatt is involved in some research herself. We had an episode where the great Raymond Moody and her, they're working on a project together. They came on, you can you can click here and watch it, uh, and that that's about some current research they're doing. And actually, spoiler alert, on this very channel, we're going to be getting a presentation about that in a couple of weeks. Uh, so there's that. And then... Um, Next, let's move on to Graham Nichols, and he has written a book about the science around out-of-body experiences. In the description, you can find information for him and for Richard Smoley if you want to hear more from any of them, but I asked him, you know, what, what's, what's the state of the current research, and this is what he had to say. Okay, well, I think the, the science is actually very strong. Um, there's, there's a range of different research um, from reincarnation research done by Ian Stevenson and uh, now Jim Tucker um, who's continued that work especially in children so cases of um, people having memories from from past experiences it's interesting that many of the reincarnation cases seem to be related to that person um, died unexpectedly or there's some reason that they needed to come back to continue things 
So um, I don't know if uh, those experiences fully confirm the idea that everyone reincarnates. It might be more suggestive that some people reincarnate for a particular purpose. So that's kind of an interesting area of research. Then there's the near-death experience research. Um, an important distinction there is prospective studies where they go out to actually look at all of the cases of near-death experiences for a period of time at a particular hospital or series of hospitals. And what they find um, nearly in every single uh, study are cases of people having out-of-body experiences at the point of cardiac arrest, um, looking down at themselves and observing accurate information about the environment. Um, and that that's pretty much consistent across the board. Um, a researcher called uh, Janice Holden uh, did a review of all of the research into near-death experiences and found that 92% of them are veridical or objectively accurate. So the things that people see while out of body are later confirmed. Uh, so unfortunately, it's not widely known about in, in mainstream science because I think many scientists simply assume that there's nothing to it or they, they just uh, haven't got much of an interest in the subject. But the scientists that do look into it, they'll find strong evidence in the near-death experience research and then also when you go into the laboratory experiments um, into uh, what's generally called psi, which is more of a neutral term. People don't like to use terms like psychic, so um, they, they use the term psi to refer to these things. And when they, when they look into that kind of research, again, you find strong, strong uh, statistical evidence for things like telepathy and um, remote viewing or clairvoyance, which is very similar to Swedenborg's experience um, where he saw the fire in, in another city in Sweden. What he's referring to there is known as the Stockholm fire. It's, it's recorded in many areas. Uh, we have a little uh, blurb of it. This is the Wikipedia entry, but it's in real places too. The story goes like this. In brief, Swedenborg lived in Stockholm. He was in another city couple hundred miles away, he was at a dinner, a lot of people were there, he started to look really worried. People said to Swedenborg, hey man, what's the deal with you? Why are you so worried right now? And he said, there's a fire in Stockholm. And they said, what? Because there was no telephones then, there's no way for him to know something. So obviously they didn't, what, what's he talking about? Then a couple hours later, he was like, okay, well, it stopped three houses away from mine, because his house almost got burned up. And so a few days later, word came in, hey, there was a giant fire in Stockholm and it happened exactly as he described it. Or that's how the story goes. Anyway, sorry, back to Graham. So those kinds of uh, experiences seem to be um, well established now um, through hundreds of institutions, through peer-reviewed peer journals. Um, I've taken part in some of those experiments myself and also organized some with uh, Rupert Sheldrake in the UK. So I think now we're at a point that really it's more for ideological reasons that the mainstream uh, science community has not accepted these things. I think that once the, the ideologies start to uh, crumble and we start to get more open-minded people of new generations coming through, I think eventually uh, these things will become 
uh, a part of uh, accepted science. That's exciting. I mean, this idea uh, that it doesn't have to be this fringe stuff, that, that there, we can actually be looking into this life after death stuff, this, this spiritual world stuff, you know, through the main legit channels we look at everything else through. I think that that's cool. And I was talking to Richard Smoley further about this, and he had some more thoughts on why, you know, why is there this sort of unwillingness to look at it right now in science and the, in general and sort of the problems that that presents. So here's what he had to say about it. All of these experiences show something quite different, which is that the mind uh, can, and in some cases does, um, survive perfectly well without the body. Uh, a lot of uh, common descriptions of this experience are even a sense of liberation, being uh, freed from the body, from being, um, as the poet Yeats put it, fastened to a dying animal. So this is very, very uh, important, and uh, science doesn't really know what to do with it. The usual uh, tactic has been to explain it away. They'll usually say something says, these experiences are anecdotal. What does that mean? Well, they happened once and you can't repeat them in a laboratory. Well, unfortunately, that doesn't really work very well because practically all of human experience is anecdotal. The whole of human history is also anecdotal. So you can't just say, well, because we can't replicate this in a lab under some kind of fairly controlled conditions, uh, it doesn't mean anything to us. It's just simply, it's just fallacious. Uh, nevertheless, this is one way of explaining it away. Um, and um, they really have an enormous amount of difficulty uh, dealing with these experiences and saying that the, the mind can and sometimes does function when the brain doesn't seem to be working at all. Uh, another tactic that's often used uh, in this line is to say, well, particularly with religious experiences, well, there are certain brain states that we equate with an experience of God. That is to say, certain brain states that, um, you know, correlate with mystical experience. You could, they claim, I don't know how true it is, that you could even, to some extent, um, stimulate these artificially with electrodes and so on. So the fact is that by this view, the argument is that our experience of God is just a brain state that has no correlation to any reality out there, wherever out there actually happens to be. This doesn't work too well either because, well, if you, are, if you have a, a part of the brain that's kind of wired to experience something, you have a fairly good reason for believing that that something exists. To put it another way, there are parts of the brain that are uh, set up, very elaborately set up, to recognize and process the experience of light, plain old ordinary light, right? Our experience of light, vision, uh, is a brain state too, about which they know a fair amount. But we don't from that conclude that light is merely a brain state, that it has no real existence out there. Of course, you get even further into it, is that, well, I, by your own theory, everything is a brain state. So, of course, even your own reasoning process by which you're saying this is a brain state is also a brain state. And why this should have any real authority over the other brain states uh, is never made clear or understood. So science is at a real impasse, uh, and I think it has been particularly for the last 30 years or so, for the simple reason that um, they know more and more about how the brain processes consciousness 
and it's much more tempting now uh, to, to say, well, it, uh, consciousness is just brain states. And uh, standard, uh, you know, neurology, psychology is um, all but says that. And they can't say it flatly because they don't know how the brain produces consciousness. There is no model of any sort produced by anyone, and they will admit this and say so, that we have no idea how the brain produces something we call consciousness. Uh, and they don't seem any closer to it than um, you know, they were 2,000 years ago in a way. Um, well, we do know certain things affect brain states, and you know, certain chemicals affect brain states, but the first man who ever got drunk uh, figured that one out. So it's at a real impasse, and a lot of it, I think there's a, uh, an enormous amount of denial there. Um, you know, it strays into the area, as you can imagine, of religion, and scientists uh, don't want to touch that uh, because it's not, strictly speaking, a scientific area. And that's all well and good, but the fact is, um, it's one thing to say, well, um, it's not something we can talk about as scientists, um, but it, they seem to go a little further than that because there's a smug kind of background assumption that therefore we know these things don't really exist. And that uh, is a major uh, impasse that the culture faces because uh, the major, uh, shall we say, repository of knowledge, the major source of knowledge, uh, at least as conventionally understood, is science. And science doesn't want to talk about these things. It would prefer that they didn't exist and pretends that they don't. So there you have it. And the, actually the very last part of that, he talked about how that sort of denial to even look into it is harming society, that, that we actually are, are not getting some of the spiritual nourishment we need because we're not checking into this with our primary checking into mechanism, which is science. So Graham had similar or thoughts in the same sort of vein when I was talking with him about so why why are these spiritual phenomena, these experiences, uh, ignored or tried or people try to explain them away uh, so often? And, and he had these thoughts about it. I think that I think that a lot of it is to do with a fear that it's a, a backdoor to religion, and and that they're kind of scared of that. A lot of people, so they don't want to accept. The, the evidence but the the evidence is it's so much stronger than the evidence for many things out there the the last uh, meta-analysis that was done for example came came back with stronger evidence for precognition for example than than the evidence for the Higgs boson particle that was recently uh, confirmed in CERN um, so it it, it's kind of interesting because the, the data is so strong, but but then when I've debated skeptics myself, they'll they'll just say, oh, but the quality of the evidence is not good enough. But then there was a recent study of the quality of parapsychological evidence, and it was actually found that the standards in parapsychology are higher than they are in, in mainstream psychology and in other areas of science. So many of these things are just prejudice, really. It's just a... Uh, a denial of, of things because you don't personally like the idea that they exist. And I never thought of it that way before that, you know, something like Higgs boson, we've discovered a particle. It does exist. We know it exists. That's something real. 
these anecdotes of near-death experiences or being able to know if somebody's calling you on the phone who it is, you know, if, you, if you've heard of that, that, that's something that's sort of, it's not really proven. But that Graham's saying that actually this, there's more evidence and the studies are cleaner and better for that stuff, but still it's got this sort of stigma around it, like that stuff is not really real. So hopefully in the future, uh, we'll be able to just hold this stuff neutrally. You know, that, that if the evidence is pointing towards there's something else out there, then let's go for it, you know? Anyway, that 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 to come for, for maybe my generation, the generation below. Who knows? Maybe in a, maybe next year could happen, right? If you guys have been enjoying this conversation about these kinds of things, please like and subscribe. I know it's a lot of work, but if you click those little buttons there... Um, that makes a big difference to us. It makes YouTube think we're more worthwhile. Gets this conversation, these ideas out to a larger audience. So really appreciate subscribing if you haven't already. Liking. if you, Only if you liked the video. Don't do it to pad our stats if you thought we phoned this one in. All right. We're going to take your live questions now. Uh, let's get a quick video break and then we'll get into it. Thanks for hanging in there. Let's see what you guys are thinking about. I'd love to yeah, get your perspective on the conversation. Let's take a look at our first question or comment. Duchess753, does Swedenborg say anything about speaking in tongues? Oh, man. So Duchess is referring to there's a practice in, I think it's, it's a Christian thing, right, uh, where where you suddenly are overcome and you just start talking in a language that no one's ever heard and and that you've never spoken in before. Let's see. There's not any. Ma- there's not major references to it. You know, Swedenborg will talk as we saw earlier in this episode about unintelligible. Like the angels are saying things that you can't understand. He could only bring a bit of it back into regular everyday human language. Um, and actually, if you look at our Raymond Moody episode, you know that, that I pointed to earlier, uh, they are talking about how people who are getting close to death speak unintelligibly, like they say things that don't make sense, but it may have meaning. But that's generally sticking with their language. Um, Swedenborg does say there is a language of the Spirit that is widely known, uh, that as soon as you shed the body, you instinctively know that it's sort of the root ideas that we all think about those expressed, and whether that could be the speaking in tongues. Um, but as far as it being, a, I don't think he would say that that when uh, it was prophesied that, that people would speak in tongues, that it's a literal thing like that. It's more about, I'd have to look up this specific reference, but it's more about how you understand things and can grasp truth. So those are my thoughts on the subject. And that's final. Okay, so thanks very much for the question. It's a good one. Sorry I couldn't answer it better. Lee, YouTube. Did Swedenborg talk with Enoch, Moses, Isaiah? Ooh, yeah. Swedenborg certainly isn't scared to make references to specific people, people from, you know, people from like Socrates, those kinds of people, but also people who were in the Bible. And now you're going to expose my some holes in my knowledge because I know that he talked to like... Paul, the Apostle Paul. I know he had experiences with David, you know, seeing David. Um, as far as the prophet Isaiah, Moses, or Enoch, I don't know if he had... I th- Moses, I know he talked about people wanting in the next life who show up and want to dine with Moses, 
you know, and that actually actors came and pretended they were Moses to show them what that would be like. But I don't know if he had experiences with those ones. If you, you know, uh, go to, you know, find Swedenborg's books, search in the word Moses, Swedenborg has indexes, that kind of thing, um, you could probably find it. But I, I don't know no specifics where those three guys come to mind. Okay, over two. Let's see what our next question is. FCO, GZA. Swedenborg says, thought brings presence and that also love brings you near angels of your community that have similar love of you, even still being in the natural world. So would it be possible to be close to my girlfriend that is since one month ago in the spiritual world? Meaning she could feel my love for her or can I feel her in some way if I'm thinking in her so much and with the same love of her? So so that's, you know, first of all, sorry for that that loss. You know, she just died a month ago. That's That must be really really powerful and, and really fresh still. So I'm sorry and appreciate you being willing to to share that. And I, I mean, how could it not, uh, you know, I would imagine that people that cross over can still have that connection. You know, if you guys are still feeling that, you know, Swedenborg says we're in the spiritual world right now, as far as our spirits are. And so if your spirit is really still feeling that connection, it's still going out, I can't imagine that wouldn't bring the two of you together. And uh you do get a you know when when people have near death experiences the people that they've known and loved in life are usually the first ones to meet them there so i would say that yeah i mean i i'm not the guy who knows for sure but i think so i mean doesn't that seem right uh and it seems to be what's indicated by the way swedenborg describes it so again sorry for your your loss uh and uh thanks for thanks for talking and i hope you you feel a connection to her and i'd say just just talk like you're feeling like she's there. And, and I think that that's, that it'll get through. So that's my opinion on it. Thanks. All right, let's look at our next YouTube. Rocky Soul. Is the spirit world in the fourth dimension? Swedenborg says some atmospheres are made of playing children. Yes, he did. Yes, he did say some atmospheres are made of playing children. There's a a short video we did called The Air in Heaven, where he describes atmospheres, you know, made of microscopic flowers, made of children at play. Check out that, um, that, uh, and also we did a longer episode on it, Eight Strange, let's see, was it Eight, I think Eight Strange Places in the Afterlife. Um, as far as the spirit world being in the fourth dimension, I don't know. Swedenborg says that the physical world and the spiritual world are completely distinct, as in they're not on a continuum, as in you can't go go somewhere, you can't go up or down or something in the physical world and reach the spiritual world, and you can't zoom out past the edge of the solar system and you'll get there. However, as far as what, you know, some people call the fourth dimension time, you know, so that it wouldn't be that by that definition, but as far as how that actual link happens, you know, I, I know that Quant, uh, people who are studying quantum mechanics, that kind of thing, the micro, the things on the smallest scale are saying there could be as many as 10 or 11 dimensions all curled up. I don't get what that means, but could that one of those be, is that the way the connection to the spiritual world happens? The answer, as it always is, I don't know, but those are a few of my of my thoughts on it. Okay, let's take a look at the next one. Barb, does Swedenborg ever talk about healing? That's an interesting question because you do hear, I remember once somebody saying that they had come across, someone who knew Swedenborg, and they'd come across another book um, about someone who was 
telling their experiences of the afterlife and they sort of said this is like the new uh, an update of heaven and hell the book and it focused a lot on healing and you certainly hear in in uh spiritual experiences about healing i once was told that that uh that a green blanket was put on me by my sister who had died because i needed healing from it in in spirit um so it does seem like healing matters and isn't healing sort of the the expression of, of love that we have um in in swedenborg it seems like the the way that you heal uh there's a sort of emotional wounds but the, the deeper healing is getting rid of the negative elements and learning the truth the truth heals um we find that in situations some people think they have no value but the truth about their value and about how we all have this place in the in the great thing can be really healing i the one of the reasons i'm sitting here hanging around swedenborg stuff is that i find healing in the concepts and obviously it's not just swedenborg these other people are reporting it too but to that that is healing to me and also when you have near-death experiences people talk about being in this light and getting this amazing emotional experience so there's that healing um that happens and then physically swedenborg and i'm just going to barely touch on this but swedenborg does say that negative influences can be associated with disease and you can get rid of those and even though you do need to heal through physical means anyway that's a whole nother that's another episode right there okay great question thanks we got two more let's get to them p hoffman you open your show with a statement about people wanting proof of god's existence which book of swedenborg is the best to give a non-believer oh man uh really any of swedenborg's are going to be a stretch because he wasn't really designing them at an an atheistic mindset. There are certainly segments where he goes at that, um, but there none of them from start to finish are like here's a pamphlet because at, in his time there were there was atheism, but there was so the society was so Christian dominated that his readership was generally that. There are definitely segments someone could easily put together a book that was about that. That said, Divine Love and Wisdom might be a good one because that's the one where he least often is you know, leaning on the, or, or, or citing the Bible uh, as, as evidence that he's just kind of appealing to philosophy and rationality. So that could be it. Um, but I'd say if you're going to give something to someone, you know, vet it a little bit first, take a look. That would be a good, you know, compilation project for the Swedenborg Foundation or some other organization. Swedenborg's message to people who, because he, he one thing is a lot of the arguments atheists make against religion, Swedenborg makes those as well. Uh, he says, you know, if there weren't these secrets locked inside the text of the Bible, why would it matter how big a temple was supposed to be or whether or not you killed a ram? Or or, or also when he says, if God really wanted to take revenge, what kind of God is that? So he has the same kind of complaints that, that atheists do. I often find that he writes a lot like you see modern atheists writing. So there's a couple of thoughts on that. Thanks very much. Good luck with that if you're going to give a book to somebody. And that's it. I just got word our last question dropped off the face of the planet. Um, They probably saw how I answered the other ones and were like, no thanks, man. Okay, so thanks everyone for hanging out. If you had fun here and you want to continue uh, or want to consider making this kind of thing continue, please consider making a donation. We have a grant, so it'll be matched five to one. If you want to do 20 bucks for a year, you'll get a membership. You get some bonuses for that. It helps support this kind of programming, which we give out free to everyone. Excuse me, I get so choked up talking about donations. Um, so, so anyway, if you want to think about it, that would be cool. Appreciate you guys hanging out, making this show possible. And if you want to hang out next week, you can. 
We're going to talk about auras. Yeah, so don't don't bring your your non-believer friend to the next show because we're going to start talking about auras. Actually, they might think it's cool. Everyone's welcome. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the specifics of those, how they work, what the heck are they, what does Swedenborg say about them. So if that sounds fun, join us next Monday. Thank you very much, and I'll see you then.